Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 363, Treason. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Rich, Ida, and Earl for signing up already. Piece by piece, the board was being set for a comeback. Wolfnoth had been thrown out of power decades ago. But his son, Godwin, knew how to be patient and to grind it out. And now, Godwin and his family were on top. In fact, Earl Godwin himself was the second most powerful person in England. At least, it's actually possible that he was the most powerful person in England. He'd even managed to get the king to marry his daughter, which very likely wasn't the king's first choice, considering that it was Godwin who'd been involved in the murder of the king's brother. So even a thousand years later, it's obvious that Godwin was an expert politician. But I'm not sure he was a great parent. His eldest son and heir, Swain, was, to put it lightly, a colossal f**k-up. And this was a fact that even Godwin couldn't have escaped. The failures of his parenting were on full display in the mid-40s, when Swain rode off to commit an act of treason by supporting the Welsh enemy of the crown only to return triumphantly with an abbess that he looted from her own nunnery. Godwin had spent decades carefully placing all the pieces on the board. Unfortunately, though, the Rook was a dumbass. And this was far from just a family problem. Because Godwin was King Edward's chief man and father-in-law, Godwin's problems were the king's problems. And actually, Swain Godwinson wasn't the only problem that was plaguing King Edward and his court. We're also told of a woman named Gunhilda, who was a relative of old King Canute. And apparently, she had just been kicked out of England. Now, we're not told why Gunhilda was exiled, but we can guess. Not only was she related to Canute, she had also been married to the son of Eric of Laid, Canute's war leader. And then she later remarried to the son of Thorkel the Tall, another of Canute's war leaders. And then, once she was exiled, she fled first to Flanders and then to Denmark, one of Canute's former domains. And Gunhilda's background and relationships, in combination with this exile, makes a lot more sense when you consider that King Magnus of Norway and Denmark had a claim to the throne of England, and there were murmurs of an impending Norse invasion. Actually, the Chronicle tells us that this threat was credible enough that King Edward raised a fleet in Sandwich to defend the coast. So it wouldn't surprise me if Gunhilda was exiled because she'd been conspiring to seize the throne from the House of Wessex and install a Scandinavian dynasty in its place. In that instance, it would be likely that we'd only hear of Gunhilda because she was the highest-ranked person to get caught. And she was high-ranked, which is why her punishment was recorded and probably also why it was relatively cushy being exile rather than execution or blinding. But the fact is, there very well may have been others who went unmentioned, and who also didn't fare as well. But whatever happened, the situation in Britain was stressful. In fact, the whole island seemed to be caught up in a cascading series of crises. You'll remember from last episode that King Gruffith at Pluellen of Wales lost 140 men around this same period, when he was ambushed in the treachery of Istrad Toei. 
And meanwhile, up in Scotland, Macbeth was also in the thick of it. Now, unfortunately, our records of Scotland are spotty, and most of them aren't actually from Scotland, so we don't have a clear picture of what was going on. But here's what we can piece together. Macbeth came to the throne when he killed King Duncan and claimed Scotland for himself. And his claim to that throne was spurious at best, so this was a bold move. And by doing that, Macbeth also disinherited King Duncan's two sons, Malcolm Canmore, meaning Malcolm Bighead, and Donald. Knowing that they would continue to be a threat to his rule, Macbeth spent years hunting them, but to no avail. They always stayed one step ahead of the king, likely thanks to the support of their fellow Scots. And one of these loyalists was likely their grandfather, Abbot Crinan of Dunkeld, who was a particularly powerful figure in Scottish politics and likely was also a Moore mayor. But even though the brothers were able to evade Macbeth, they also weren't gaining ground. So after a couple years, they went into exile, fearing that Macbeth might get lucky sooner or later. And soon thereafter, Malcolm Bighead was welcomed to the English court, thanks to the support of Earl Seward of Northumbria. And once there, King Edward took an interest in the plight of this would-be king. And then we have several years before we get much more information about this story. But during that period, it's likely that this rift in Scottish society, likely over the ascension of Macbeth, was deepening. And in 1045, just five years after King Duncan was killed, we're told that there was a battle between two Scottish armies. One of the armies was led by none other than Crinan of Dunkeld, the grandfather of Malcolm Bighead and Donald, and the father of King Duncan. And this is significant because the Scottish record doesn't give us any clear indication that Macbeth faced any sort of opposition to his rule. But the presence of this army and who it was being led by certainly raises an eyebrow. After all, the sons of Duncan were able to stay in Scotland for years despite being hunted by King Macbeth. And it's hard to imagine that that would have been possible without a faction that was in opposition to Macbeth. It may have been underground, but it was also apparently large enough and devoted enough to keep the boys safe for years. And now we're being told about a battle between two Scottish armies. And one of them was being led by King Duncan's father. Now, unfortunately, we aren't given any other specific details regarding the forces. We aren't even told who led the other army, nor why they were fighting. But the language of this entry implies a large mobilization of levies. And considering the number of soldiers involved, and who led half of them, this is very likely a rebellion. And it was probably Macbeth, or one of his generals, who was leading the other army. Furthermore, the number of casualties suggests that this fight was nasty. We're told that in the fighting, Crinan, along with 180 of his warriors, fell. But interestingly, we're only told of the casualties on Crinan's side. We aren't given any details regarding the opposing army. How many there were, how many fell, nothing. And that seems odd, unless you consider the possibility that the scribes weren't eager to name this as a rebellion. And as such, they didn't want to point out that it was Macbeth and his forces. So this entry is significant because it might be one of the only surviving records that suggests that the turmoil of the Scottish throne didn't stop under Macbeth, but instead continued during his reign unabated. However, assuming that this was a challenge to Macbeth's power, it failed. 
and now a major figure of the Scottish royal dynasty, along with scores of his warriors, were dead. And watching this from England, I'm sure that Big Head realized that his position was going from bad to worse. And into this mess enters a record from the Annals of Durham that tells us that in 1046, which is one year after Crinan was killed in that battle, quote, Earl Seward came to Scotland with a great army, end quote. Now, as you'll remember, Earl Seward was a close ally of Malcolm Bighead. It was his intervention that had brought the would-be king to the English court in the first place. So he already had a history of involving himself in Scottish politics. And this record also tells us that Earl Seward and his massive army, quote, expelled King Macbeth and appointed another, end quote, which you would assume would have been Malcolm Bighead. But, quote, after his departure, Macbeth recovered the kingdom, end quote. Now, here's the thing with this entry. I think its veracity could go either way. Northumbria was certainly militarily powerful, but it seems very unlikely that the Northumbrians would have been able to expel Macbeth from Scotland all on their own. Could they have won a battle or two? Sure. But expel the king? I'm not so sure. Moreover, this is our only record of this alleged invasion, and it's entirely uncorroborated, so I can't promise you that it even happened. And unless Earl Seward had the support of King Edward, or some of his fellow earls, or additional Scottish forces who had remained loyal to Big Head, but who hadn't been killed in that previous year, I seriously question Seward's ability to fully expel Macbeth. Though there is another possibility. What if the scribes of Durham screwed up the dating? What if this conflict actually happened on the same year as Crinan's rebellion? In that situation, it's possible that this was a large multi-kingdom rebellion against Macbeth, which did have some brief success, but ultimately ended with the death of Crinan and the restoration of Macbeth. And supporting this possibility is the fact that Seward would later carry out another invasion, again with the support of some local Scots, and again against Macbeth. So it's possible that the Annals of Durham are giving us an account of Seward's first attempt to depose Macbeth. But even then, at worst, I suspect that this was less of an expulsion and more of a retreat into his homeland of Murray, since he would have known that once they hit those mountains, he could rip the invading army to shreds, as the people of Murray had been doing for generations. So, expelling the king just doesn't seem likely to me. And to be honest, considering the fact that the replacement wasn't even worthy of mention, my guess is that this was a much smaller conflict than one over the Scottish throne. I think the most likely story is that this entry describes a smaller struggle over a southern portion of Scotland, maybe Lothian. Seward may have nabbed it, put a friendly noble in charge, and then lost the territory as soon as his army departed. But whatever the case, despite the silence in the Scottish records, Macbeth's reign appears to have been just as unstable and just as chaotic as his forebears have been. Meanwhile, across the North Sea, Scandinavia was coming apart at the seams. King Magnus of Norway and Denmark was preparing for war with England. He wanted to acquire the crown that was his by right, thanks to the deal that he struck with Harthacanute. So his fleets were being gathered, and his men were being armed. And because medieval kings were a lot like eight-year-old boys, he was also sending a note to Edward telling him that he wanted to fight, presumably during recess. So it was going down. Or 
at least it would have gone down, if things hadn't suddenly gone terribly wrong. Swain Estrison, the English-born son of the famous Jarl Ulf and Estrith's sister of Canute, had raised a force and was now fighting a rebellion to free Denmark from Norse control. And he had plenty of supporters. And the truth is, that would have been bad enough to halt a planned invasion. But then it got worse. Magnus's uncle, Harold, had returned to Norway. And here's the thing about Harold. Harold was a Varangian commander, a gifted war leader, an incredibly wealthy raider, the kind of guy who seduced princesses with his poetry, and, if the sources can be trusted, a stone-cold hottie. Not exactly the sort of person you'd want as a rival. And he definitely was a rival, because Harold was also a legitimate claimant to the throne of Norway. And that was a problem for Magnus. Because while he had many things going for him, legitimacy wasn't one of them. He was the bastard son of King Olaf, which meant that the king was now up against a guy who probably looked like Joel Kinnaman, wrote like Lord Byron, fought like that dude from Gladiator, and was the one true heir to the kingdom. Oh, he also had an army. An army who thought that Harold should be on the throne, not Magnus. An army that was now raiding Magnus's lands in Denmark. Oh, and did I mention he was also allied with the rebel Dane Swain Estrison? Because yeah, he was. So obviously that whole conquest of England thing had to be put on hold until this crisis was settled. Now, unfortunately, Magnus had few options here. Open war with Uncle Harold was straight out because not only was Harold popular, he was also family and fighting with your own uncle was a bad look. So Magnus did the one thing that had a chance of working. He offered Harold a truce with a settlement. If Harold would agree to a peace treaty and agree to share some of his incredible wealth, Magnus would agree to share the throne. Harold agreed. And just like that, the rebel leader Swain Estrison lost an ally and gained an enemy. Estrison needed to tip the balance back in his favor. And he knew that Magnus was a serious threat to English shores. He was even sending mead notes to Edward between classes. So it was there that Swain saw an opportunity to make an ally of his own. He sent a messenger to the English court and asked King Edward to send 50 ships to support his war against their mutual enemy, King Magnus. But timing is everything. Months earlier, King Magnus had looked weak and on the verge of collapse. But now... He was at the head of a unified Norway, he was supported by his rock star uncle, and he was commanding their now-combined fleet, which was gargantuan. King Edward and his Witan wanted nothing to do with that, so they politely denied Swain's request. The rebel king Swain Ethrasin and his men stood alone against the combined Norse forces and were told that their army was slaughtered and Swain was driven out of Denmark. The Danes now without an army or a leader, accepted their Norse overlords and paid them tribute. The treaty between uncle and nephew had worked. King Magnus and King Harold now reigned supreme. But it wasn't all wine and roses. New King Harold might have had a way with words and might have been gifted at war and gifted at salty winks, but he was also a battle-hardened raider and a Varangian commander, and that had influenced his leadership style. Before long, King Harold earned himself a nickname, Harold the Hard Ruler, 
or in Old Norse, Harald Hadrada. And all of this occurred on the same year that a different Swain, Swain Godwinson, decided it would be a good idea to engage in some light treason and then kidnap a nun as a treat for a job well done. 1046 was a whole thing. But speaking of that nun, as you might imagine, kidnapping nuns and marrying them was frowned upon in England in the 11th century. And while I'm not sure what Godwin thought of what his son did, we do know that King Edward was pissed as hell. It was hard to find a way to look at what Swain had done as anything less than an audacious power grab and a blatant violation of English cultural norms. I mean, when he joined that Welsh war, he was giving aid and support to an enemy of one of the chief men of the Witan, who just happened to be a rival of the House of Godwin. And then when he grabbed the abbess, a Gifu, and tried to marry her, it was a clear attempt to acquire the wealthy and influential lands of Leminster. So none of this was good. And it wasn't like King Edward was all that pleased with the Godwin family to begin with. But Swain was Godwin's eldest son. And I'm guessing that the king didn't want to risk fighting a civil war against his chief counselor over some jackass. So rather than imposing a strict sentence, Edward just chalked this whole mess up to affluenza and simply demanded that Swain put the poor abbess back where he found her. But this was Swain Godwinson. He didn't take orders. So he refused the king's order and he kept the abbess for an entire year. And that might surprise you, but it's important to remember that the family of Godwin was absurdly powerful and King Edward's rule was being threatened from every angle. The fact is Edward was just too busy and too weakened to be able to throw it all up in the air for Abbas A. Gifu. In fact, Edward's position was so bad that it seemed like even the weather was turning against him. We're told that on this year, quote, came the strong winter with frost and with snow and with all kinds of bad weather so that there was no man then alive who could remember so severe a winter as this was, both through loss of men and through loss of cattle. Yea, fowls and fishes through much cold and hunger perished, end quote. So it wasn't just politics. This year was so bad that even the birds were dying. And sure enough, the entries for this year are unusually large, in part because they're stuffed with obituaries for various members of the clergy who snuffed it. So, in addition to the threat of war with Magnus, and whatever treason Gunhilda was up to, and Swain's side war and side peace, there was also a bitter winter and a famine. But when it rains, it pours. And 1046 wasn't done yet. Suddenly, Osgood Clappa, which translates to Osgood the Coarse, appears in our story. Now, Osgood was the king's master of horse. And this didn't mean that he was the kid who cleaned the stables. This meant that he was a high-ranked nobleman, a staller, who was given important duties that in turn gave him a great deal of influence and access in the halls of power. Osgood was also rich. He owned estates all throughout East Anglia, and while he wasn't the Earl of East Anglia, that could be forgiven because there wasn't an official Earl of East Anglia during this period. But if there was one, Osgood probably would have been the top candidate. But then something happened. King Edward married Earl Godwin's daughter, Edith, in early 1045. And shortly thereafter, Harold Godwinson, who was now the king's new brother-in-law, began to witness documents as the Earl of East Anglia. And then... Just one year later, in 1046, 
during the same year as this absolute avalanche of treason and crises, the scribes tell us that Osgood Clapa was driven out of England. We aren't told why he was driven out, nor are we told if it had anything to do with the fact that the Godwins were consolidating control over the region, which had previously been kind of his region. But whatever it was, Osgood and his influence over East Anglia was broken. The Godwins would now reign there. And Osgood had to take refuge in Flanders, just like Gunhild, which meant that the two of them were now just a stone's throw away from Edward's most dangerous rival, King Magnus of Norway and Denmark. Now, do you remember how we talked about norms and how when they're broken, like they were during the reign of Athelred Unred, it's really hard to reassert them? And how oftentimes the right to rule is highly dependent on those very same norms. Well, right about now, I'm guessing that Edward was wishing his father had done a better job and had respected the norms that made his rule possible. Because looking at what he was capable of, Edward was a weakened king. His witan was composed mostly of the same people who'd served under the Danish kings of England. And he clearly didn't feel that he had the ability to challenge his own earls. Instead, looking at the record, we find Edward repeatedly in a position where he needs to give more and more power to the Godwins. And it was so bad that even when the Archbishop of Canterbury fell ill and needed a replacement, we're told that the new Archbishop was chosen, quote, with the leave and counsel of the King and Earl Godwin, end quote. And adding color to this picture, in the Vita Edwardi, we're told that the court was divided between two factions one that was trying to stack the church with their own friends, and another that was seeking to give the seas to foreigners. Now, the Vita doesn't just come out and say the king wanted continental clergy who wouldn't be politically tied to the Godwins, and the Godwins wanted to put their friends in the seas. But that is the implication. And Godwin's influence was everywhere. And for most of the 1040s, King Edward appears to have been just trying to become master of his own kingdom. And that was something that was just assumed in times past, back when the throne still had the influence and majesty that norms used to provide. But speaking of norms, you know what's out of the norm? Sex holidays with nuns. And while the king was pretty clearly distracted by some significant internal problems, the fact was he still wasn't pleased with Swain Godwinson and his dating strategy. And according to Worcester tradition, neither were Archbishop Aedsiga of Canterbury and Bishop Liffing of Worcester. In fact, they were livid and were putting as much pressure as they could upon Godwin's firstborn to get him to give up his blushing bride of Christ. Now, it isn't clear what sort of leverage they were using. But after a year of this, Swain finally relented and returned Abbasid Gifu to Leminster. But he wasn't happy about it. He immediately lashed out seizing lands from the Bishopric of Worcester, including Macebrook, Hopton, North Cleobury, and many other estates throughout Shropshire, meaning that he likely rode from place to place with an armed company and forcefully took possession of these lands. And this, of course, didn't go unnoticed by the king, who already had it up to here with Godwin's failed son, but who, thanks to his recent marriage, was also his f***ing brother-in-law a fact that I'm sure Edward was now bitterly resenting. You see, in medieval society, the bonds created by marriage, especially in the upper classes, were significant. They even had special words for father-in-laws and brother-in-laws, swear and adsum, 
And with these words came obligations and bonds of honor, which meant that Swain wasn't just some terrible noble who needed to be handled. He was someone to whom the king was intimately bonded. And to make matters worse, Earl Godwin was still the most powerful earl in England. And I really can't emphasize this enough. Godwin was Duke's Bylus, the chief office bearer, and he'd been serving in that role since the days of Canute, which meant that Godwin, and by extension his sons, were functionally the true guarantors of peace in England. The king held the throne, but the subtext in these records repeatedly indicates that it was the Godwins who were really running the show. So this issue of Swain wasn't just difficult to handle on a social level. It was also politically dangerous. If King Edward challenged Swain in a way that made Earl Godwin feel obliged to intervene, the king might end up losing his crown. Or worse. Edward really did have the worst in-laws. But there wasn't much he could do about that now. So, rather than giving Swain what he deserved, the king exiled him and divided all, or at least part, of Swain's lands between his 25-year-old younger brother, Harold Godwinson, and his cousin, Bjorn Estrison, who, incidentally, was the brother of the rebel king of Denmark, Swain Estrison. I'm not kidding, the Godwins had their fingers in damn near every pie. But anyway, by making this decree, the king managed to get rid of Swain in a way that didn't offend the Godwins. Their power remained intact, and as such, the king would hopefully be able to still draw upon their support in times of need. Furthermore, I'm sure the king hoped that Harold would now feel indebted to him, as the king had earlier made him an earl and was now adding to his land significantly and possibly even making him an heir to the rich earldom of Wessex. And as for Swain, well, now landless, he left English shores and headed to, wait for it, Flanders. So this means that we now have at least three highborn English nobles living in exile in the same place, which is also in close proximity to a king who really wants to invade England. Someone should have thought this through a bit better. But hey, at least Swain Godwinson wasn't King Edward's problem anymore. Unfortunately for Count Baldwin and the people of Flanders, this also meant that they now had to deal with Swain f***ing Godwinson. And just because he was living in exile didn't mean that he was going to slow down. We aren't told what he got up to in Flanders, but it can't have been good. And by the time summer of the following year rolled around, Count Baldwin and the people of Flanders sent Swain packing. So, he headed northeast, to Denmark, to those lands that were ruled over by King Edward's most dangerous enemy, King Magnus. Oh, good. Now, I'm not sure what his plan was, and honestly, I'm not even sure if Swain Godwinson was familiar with the concept of plans at all. But shortly after his arrival in Denmark, in October of 1047, something happened. While King Magnus was in Denmark, he died. Suddenly. Now, keep in mind that Magnus wasn't old. He was in his 20s, in fact. He had also only recently agreed to share his throne with his uncle Harold, an uncle who wanted that throne so badly that he was willing to ally with the Danish rebellion and fight a war for it. And the only way that the war ended was when Magnus agreed to share the throne. And then a year later, he's dead? Come on, that is so convenient you can fry it up in a pan and serve it with butter. And considering all of this, 
I think it's pretty important that we at least know how the king died, you know? But that's where it gets even more suspect, because no one can agree how it happened. Some say he was out mustering ships to invade England and fell overboard, and, I don't know, forgot how to swim. Others say he fell off his horse. Some say he got sick while he was out at sea and just kicked it. No one is sure what happened. But what we are assured of is that before he died, he declared Harald Hadrada as his heir and said that he should hold the throne of Norway and that the rebel Dane Swain Estrasen should inherit Denmark. And that might be true. There have been stranger deathbed statements in history. But bequeathing your thrones to the two men who had only recently allied in an attempt to overthrow you is a bit weird, especially when you die suddenly in your 20s and no one can agree how that death happened. I'm just saying, this doesn't look good. I'm also saying that the other Swain, Swain Godwinson, chose a really weird time to travel to Denmark. Well, I guess this would be a weird time for most people. But this was Swain Godwinson. He liked conflict. Thank you for listening. 